Today's reading is from John chapter 4, verses 1 to 30. And um, sorry, I've forgotten what page it was in in the Bible, but it's on your leaflet if you want to look it up. And then after verse 30, we're going to jump down uh, to verse 39 to 42. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, What do you want? Or, why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back down to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, They urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of communication, and that even though you're awesome and far beyond even the very beginning of our comprehension, you desire to make yourself known to us. Lord, that you've come amongst us to teach us and that by your spirit, Lord, you give us understanding about your word each day. Lord, as we come before you now, we pray that you would open our understanding to what this passage has to teach us and that we would go from this place having you communicate with us and therefore us being in deeper relationship with you as a consequence. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, when I last spoke here, I um, 
shared a meeting that Jesus had with an individual, particularly in that case it was the woman who had the problem with the blood flow. And in the same vein, today I'm going to share another meeting that Jesus had with an individual. And Chris is going to take up this theme and from the book of John look over the next couple of weeks at a number of different encounters that Jesus had with people. I think, as I said last time, these encounters are so incredibly exciting Because in the subtle details, we find so much of who Jesus is and so much of who we are actually in these passages. And we learn some things about our relationship with him. Um, What's also interesting, I think, is we read these kind of raw accounts. Even through the paradigm of today's values, they stand up to the test of time. In fact, I think it's probably fair enough to say that these encounters are more politically correct now than they were then. And I think that to a degree that validates the fact that these are literal accounts of what Jesus said and did. I made that point last time, but I do want to touch on it again today because we see some features about this story that would mean there's no way somebody would come and make this particular account up. It actually had to be what actually occurred. So we're going to talk today about the encounter that Jesus had with the woman at the well. First, if you remember also back to that time, I'm... It's flickering, but anyway, I also um, focused on a key verse, and I want to do that again today, the same verse actually, and it's this one. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. These are the words of Jesus recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And as we share this story today, I want to unpack some features of that verse and apply them. So let's get into it. The story I'm sure you are probably reasonably familiar with, the woman at the well. This encounter only occurs in John's Gospel. In fact, 90% of what's in John's Gospel is not included in the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, um, Matthew, Mark and Luke. Um, John's Gospel in many ways is quite different than those other Gospels if you read it and and possibly one of the reasons is this. It was the last Gospel written and quite a considerable time after the Synoptic Gospels. And as a consequence, the facts, if you like, of Jesus' ministry were probably well established by that stage. And so what John is doing in his gospel is focusing particularly on the identity and, and purpose and nature of Jesus. It's quite a theological account if you read it carefully. And the way John structures it is that he writes about encounters often and discourses that Jesus has with particular individuals throughout that text and it's in the discourse the conversation that he has that various points are drawn out and in a sense I suppose Jesus is unpacking theology and John's doing it through recording those words and this encounter the encounter that Jesus has with the woman at the well is the longest of those particular encounters and there's a lot to learn from it so I'm going to talk first of all about what we learn about Jesus from it and then what we learn about ourselves from it The first thing I find interesting about this passage is that it focuses on Jesus' weariness and tiredness. A reminder that we're dealing with somebody here who's human and actually is subject to all the human frustrations and weaknesses that we face. He asks this woman for water. He must do that because he doesn't have any implement to pull it out of the well. She makes that point a little bit later in the passage. I'm not sure if I move away from that or if it will stop flickering or if it's just... If anyone has epilepsy and that sets you off, sorry, we'll, we'll deal with that as it happens. It's like, um, that he is actually making himself vulnerable to this woman um, and announcing his thirst. I know that this is probably one of the heaviest points I'm going to raise this morning, so sorry to start with it. But actually, you know, the fact that he's weary is the very reason that he can offer us living water. It's by humbling himself. And coming in the form of a servant, that passage from Philippians that we read earlier in the service and that Chris spoke about a couple of weeks ago, it's the fact that he subjected himself to human conditions and went to the cross to die that he actually can offer us salvation. That's the process of our salvation. It's actually by being that servant, by being that one weakened, by being human, that he's actually our saviour. And it's interesting that the woman doesn't recognize him as the Messiah. She knows there's a Messiah coming. But for her and 
for most Jews, the image of a Messiah is of somebody very powerful, somebody who will come politically with strength and overcome the difficulties that they're facing. What they don't expect is this human, weakened, weary Messiah. Interestingly, it's not until the woman can recognize that this is in fact the Messiah, it's not until the Jews recognize that their Messiah is coming as a servant, it's not until we recognize that that Messiah is a servant that we can be saved. And so the passage starts there. In fact, this image of God is a puzzling one. Even the Even the servant Messiah would not have been a concept that gospel writers, if they were attempting to make up a Messiah that they could sell well, they wouldn't go for this image. It just, it's controversially puzzling to people. And you can see that in the way people responded to this idea. um, And perhaps even still do. And that's why I think we still have religion even when we've got Christianity because the bottom line is people still want a system that means they can earn their salvation. And so we pack around the gospel all these things we have to do. little side point there. The other reason I don't think that this would be a made-up encounter is there are a number of things here that Jesus is doing that break the rules of propriety for the time. And you can see it in the passage. First of all, This woman is a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans were a sect who had broken away from mainstream Judaism. They did actually follow parts of the Old Testament, but their focus was only on the Pentateuch. And they had a very, very different view about where it is that they should worship. So they believed that they should worship on Mount Gerizim, and and the Jews said it needed to be in Jerusalem. I, I don't know when you follow this passage. I find it quite funny that the structure of the conversation, there's a few points in it where it suddenly jumps somewhere, and you think, hang on, where's that going? And one of them is when Jesus asks this woman to bring her husband, and she says, well, I don't have a husband, and he sort of reveals her life to her, which is one of those passages we all get like, oh my goodness, does that mean he sees into it? Yes, he does everything. Um, And when he makes that point to her, she changes the subject. She changes the subject to this issue of where worship should take place because it was the essential difference between the Samaritans and the Jews. So she's pulling it back to theology because it's safe. You know, discussion about her personal life? Mm -hmm. So she shifts the subject. But Jesus... Well, shouldn't be talking to a Samaritan woman. She notices that. She says it. First thought. And Jesus has come to save everyone, regardless of race or creed. When the disciples return, second in politically incorrect thing that Jesus is doing, they are surprised that he's speaking to a woman. A man talking to a woman, a Jew talking to a Samaritan, alone in the middle of the day, They're surprised because that's politically inappropriate. But Jesus came to save everyone, regardless of their gender. The other thing that he's doing that's possibly politically incorrect is that this woman is morally questionable. She's on to her sixth man, we find that out, and she's actually living with him and she's not married to him. Jesus knew that detail about her. And maybe this is the reason why she's drawing water at the sixth hour or in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, when the majority of women would have come at the e- in the evening when it was much cooler. Is it possible that what she's doing is just avoiding the kind of social indiscretion that's led to a little bit of you know, gossip about her perhaps? Maybe. But in spite of that, Jesus is speaking to this woman he knows is morally questionable and not following the law as she should be. But Jesus has come to save everyone, regardless of their moral situation. Hallelujah. Because if we had to be morally right before we could get saved, we're all in trouble. Regardless of race or creed, regardless of gender, regardless of sin... It reminds me of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where he says, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, um, slave nor free. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And Jesus' response to this woman demonstrates that truth. And Jesus is radical. He doesn't do what others expecting, uh, expect of him. And this is why he actually got himself so much into trouble. And I don't think anyone would write this story if they were making it up because Jesus is doing everything wrong in other people's minds, not the choice you would make to sell a Messiah. 
So that's what this passage reveals about Jesus. Now, what does it reveal about us? Well, the first thing that Jesus reveals to this woman is that we have physical needs. We do. The Bible doesn't deny that we have physical needs. We're designed and created with those physical needs. Everything from the essentials, you know, air, food, water, right through even to things that are quite complex like sexual needs, etc. These are God-given. These are in the design of who we are. But what Jesus is pointing out to this woman is that we have physical needs, but even more deeply than that, we have spiritual needs. That's the central thrust of this passage. Now, we spend most of our time, don't we, actually satiating our physical needs in general, food, drink, sleep, shelter, pleasure, comfort, and that's not wrong. Jesus isn't denying that we need those things in this passage. But if that's all we do in life, seek the physical, if our life is spent entirely in pursuit of temporal needs, then we're actually still going to be very empty. If you think about it, the people in this world who we would say have everything we think a person would need in order to be happy. Money, great work, job, fame, etc. Often are the emptiest. And you don't have to look very far to prove that. If you go to any kind of gossip magazine, if you look on any news thread, isn't it the case that those people that are focused on there, who have dysfunction in their lives, drug addiction, alcoholism, a deep emptiness in relationships where they're going from marriage to marriage to marriage, um, bad health choices and even suicide at times. You'd ask why. Why is it that if they've got everything we say that they would want, still there's all that dysfunction in life? Well, because there's this deep dissatisfaction that comes with only seeking to fulfill the physical. Why is it? Well, Jesus points it out in this passage. Anyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. And for this water, read, anyone who eats this gourmet food will hunger again. Anyone who rests in this five-star shelter will need rest again. Anyone who wears designer clothes, anyone who wins the best guy or girl, anyone who drives a luxury car, whatever it is, will be thirsty again, if you're following the metaphor. Everyone. Physical things don't suffice. You know the thing. You're longing for something. You're looking forward to something. You finally get that something, and then gradually it loses its gloss, and then you want the next thing, and on we go. Well, Jesus is pointing this out. If you drink this water, you will thirst again. We will if we're only satisfying the physical things in our lives. What we're really looking for is the living water. What is water? What is life? Water is essential to our survival. Water is sustenance. Water is refreshing. Water is cleansing. What a powerful thing then, if you take that metaphor, what a powerful thing is living water. That is the water that spiritually cleanses us, spiritually sustains us, spiritually refreshes us, spiritually gives us life. That's the living water. And that's the thing that Jesus is telling this woman that she needs. She needs living water, not just physical water. Our spiritual need is greater than our physical need. And that's why when all of our physical needs are met, we can still have a deep inner longing. So if we spend our lives only chasing the physical, we're chasing vapor. Now this living water that Jesus speaks to the woman about, I may have to change my slide, I don't know. Yes. I'm... I'm not referring, you just read that as we go. You know, you can do two things at once. Well, the women can anyway. I can say that. (laughs) I'm a man. This living water will not just satisfy whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst, but it will also lead to a value and a purpose and an overflowing life because Jesus adds to that. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What an amazing offer. That Jesus is saying, I'll give you this. It's freely available. I'll give you this living water. And this woman realized that she needs it. Because what's her response? Sir, give me this water. She knew that she needed it. I think we all know that we need it. I think if we went out into Stirling and Allgate and we asked the question right, I think most people would acknowledge that they need it. If we said to most people, 
Do you need something that gives you a sense of worth and a sense of esteem and of value? Do you have an inner ache that you feel at times need to be met? Do you think you have a spiritual life or are you just physical in flesh and blood sense? I think most people would say, yeah, yeah, no, there is a longing there. And I do think I'm more than just flesh and blood. And yes, I do actually want a sense of worth and value that's lasting. I think if we said to most people, do you want this living water that's described here, they'd say, yeah, I want that. So most people would want it, but actually, and and the great news is that it's freely available, but the problem is there's a barrier. There's something that stops us from getting this living water. That's what I want to focus on from here. This woman knows that she wants it, and Jesus is willing to show her how to get it. But there's a barrier and he focuses on that next in the conversation. Look at this. It's a strange development, isn't it? Because here, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, this is like response to a gospel message, isn't it? She says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And that's like... There's an opportunity that Jesus could now lead her to repentance and salvation. And then he says, go fetch your husband. That's like an evangelical opportunity missed right there. What's happening here? Why does Jesus suddenly want meet and greet? Go home, get the family, bring them back. Well, I actually think he's directly answering her question even though it looks like he's changing the subject. And there's something very powerful in what he changes this conversation to be and something that has bearing on our lives too. Jesus points out when she says that she has no husband, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. Now, I don't think Jesus is trying to condemn this woman. Why speak to her in the first place if he knew this information about her? Why has he gone through this discourse of explaining the idea of living water? Why does he offer her to that in the first instance if really all he's about here is revealing something he knows about her to make her feel bad about herself? I don't think he's doing that at all. I think he's trying to find out, point out to her an essential point and it's one for us as well. It's this question. What is your source of living water? What is it that you're looking to, to be satiated, to be quenched, to be refreshed? This woman, I think Jesus is pointing out, has made her source of living water having a man. Moving from relationship to relationship. Sure, you could say, what if they all died? I think if they all died, that sixth one should get out as fast as he possibly can. But, you know, what if they divorced her? What, what if it's not her fault that she's had to go from relationship to relationship? The point still stands, though. Isn't it obvious that she's moved from relationship to relationship in search of something? That she's on to her sixth man. Look, if somebody, look, you know, when you're talking to people and they say, look, here's my, this is my fifth husband. It's like, hmm. There's something going on there, isn't there? I mean, honestly. (laughs) I would say this woman has made relationships and the relationship with a man the source of living water. That's why Jesus goes to this point when she asks, show me this living water. What he needs to show her first is what she's made her living water to be before she can start making a change in her life that's going to radically alter her. But we are in this same situation as well. We've got to ask ourselves the question, what is the source of living water in our life? And for all of us, what is the potential source of living water we can sometimes be tempted to shift away to when we know Jesus and we've experienced living water from him But what's our leaning? What's the thing that sometimes can grab us and lead us away? And I want to think about that today. You might think, in this situation, I don't have a problem. This woman's gone from husband to husband to husband. I can't even get one relationship up and running and sustain it very well, let alone five or six of them. But think about it for a moment. There are so many possible sources of living water, things in which we can place our confidence, things like our physical appearance. 
sexuality, sex itself or our sexuality, social relationships, whether it be Facebook, social media, or whether actual relationships, because they're not actually actual relationships, just saying, um, family, friends, maybe it's romance, travel, holidays, money, work, church. We're going to get some complex things happening here in a minute, but this list is possibly endless. I think we all need to stop and think for a minute, and I'm going to share something from my own life in a little while, so I'm not just asking you to do this, but to think, what might it be? What might the thing be that can be temptingly a source of living water in our lives? Maybe more than one thing. Now, before we explore this aspect of living water, I do want to say this. Almost all the things I'm going to mention are in themselves good I'm not for a moment suggesting that we should be rejecting things that God's actually given us as gifts. It's okay to look nice. Human connections are essential to our sense of well-being. Work is important. Sex is a gift of God when it's experienced in its rightful context. Travel's exciting because it's seeing the world that God's created, etc. These can be amazing blessings and gifts of God. So do not hear me for a second saying that there's not goodness in them. I'm not saying that. We can actually be really humbly thankful for those things. And by the way, I think that's one of the keys to checking that we're not allowing something to become our source of living water is that we keep thankfulness in its right place and keep an acknowledgement of what the source of the gift is and be aware when we've stopped being thankful to God And we're focusing instead on the gift and the gift is becoming our God instead of the one who gave it. And we need to keep checking that we haven't got pseudo sources of living water in our lives. Look, I thought, I had a little thought while I was in this section of the message. It doesn't quite fit in, but I'm going to share it anyway and do with it what you like. Sometimes it's God's gift to not give us something we think we want. Or not to give it with the timing that we would regard as the best timing. If the gaining of that thing that we think we want actually means the loss or a risk to our relationship with him, then it would be a curse and not a blessing. What does it profit a person if they gain the whole world but lose their own soul? All right. How do we know if these things, like relationships with men for this woman at the well, are actually becoming our alternative sources of living water? And I've got four kind of test questions that we can apply to these. Are we ready? This is not to say, by the way, these tests reveal in you some corruption that you need to run out of here and beat yourself with a hyssop bush or something like that. I don't know what people did. One, here's a test to see what might be your source of living water. What do you think about most frequently in the solitude of your own space? When you've got opportunity for your mind to drift anywhere, where does it go naturally? Is it an individual that you want to have a relationship with? Is it work? Is it earning money and what you'd do with that money if you had it? Is it winning the lottery? Is it your dream house? Is it getting famous somehow? What do you most spend your thought life on? Now, that's not to say any of those things are bad things to think about or even fun to kind of think about, but it can be an indicator as to what might be a source of living water in your life. Second point, and more seriously, is there an addiction or habit in your life? And what I mean by that is something that controls you rather than you controlling it. Sometimes we can have things that we don't think are addictions, but actually they are because we're not controlling them. They're controlling us. Are you constantly on Facebook, unable to put your phone down, desperately needing somehow to be in contact, connected to others through social media? That would be an addiction if you couldn't put it down. Has thinking about sex so grabbed a hold of you that you're trapped in a cycle of looking at pornography, looking, feeling bad, telling God you won't do it again, doing it again, feeling bad, telling God you won't, on you go. Is that happening? 
Has a concern about your appearance become so strong that it affects your thoughts about yourself all the time? You know, what does he think of me? Or will they notice this flaw about me? Oh, I'm so bad today or whatever. And that happens and that's just normal and natural for some people. <laughs> Fair enough. Like, oh, anyway. um, are you constantly checking yourself, grooming yourself, or, or got yourself addicted to exercise, for example? Now, obviously, addictions at a deep level, and I haven't mentioned some of the more obvious ones, But sometimes these are really complex and there's lots of reasons for them and I don't think that dealing with them is particularly an easy fix and I wouldn't stand up here and pretend for a moment that we can have some magical thing come to the front, repent and bam, you'll be healed from that thing. That's not always the case. Sometimes it's a long struggle. But what I am saying is that perhaps dealing with them part of dealing with it, might be getting the source of living water right in your life. And that can help in the process of healing from those things. Another question to ask, third, this is a little, I, I hate asking this question, but is there something that you need others to be worse at than you in order for you to feel okay about yourself? Imagine for somebody, for instance, for whom... Getting a marriage and a family is so important that although they're single, whenever they hear stories about families that are struggling or marriages that have fallen apart, there's a little bit in them that gloats at it because their singleness is a little bit easier to bear when marriages aren't going well. Or somebody who so desperately wants to be a famous singer or to sing well that when anyone gets up and is not particularly good, there's a little bit of a (laughs) in them. Um, you know, that can happen. And it can happen in subtle ways too. Ah, oh, they're looking a little bit overweight. They are graying a little more than I am. You know, there's those subtle things. They can be the indicators of the thing that in your life is a source of living water. It's so important to you that somebody else not succeeding at that thing makes you feel better. And fourthly, and maybe the scariest thing of this test Is there something in our life that when we don't achieve that thing or we don't receive it or it's taken from us that we get angry with God? Or maybe we're willing to compromise on something we know God doesn't agree with or we're ignoring something we know God's calling us to do because we want that thing more and therefore we risk our relationship with him. Our faith and our love in God can be challenged when if we're putting us, our focus and our faith in a source of living water and it's, we don't receive it, we start feeling like he's let us down. How ironic is that? Jesus said there, you who drink this water, you'll thirst again. He acknowledges that. And if we're putting our faith and confidence in another source of living water and then we feel like it's not being provided and then we get angry at God and he's saying, hey, I, I told you it wasn't in that that you would find your joy and your delight and your sustenance and your refreshment. It's in me. And what we do, because we're not given that thing, we reject the very thing that's made available to us. There's a deep, sad irony in that as a reaction. I have a friend at the moment who's um, struggling with this because she desperately wants to have a child and she can't and she's prayed about it and she's done IVF and she's getting actually very angry with God. Now I'm not saying for a minute that her situation isn't hard and I pray desperately for her that she could get pregnant, how great that would be, what a joy it would be. But the fact that anger is starting to come into that would tend to indicate that this thing has become a source of living water for her. That's where she feels that her joy, her sustenance, her refreshment, her worth would lie. And she's getting her attention. It's straying away and it's destroying the very source of living water in her life. And how sad it will be if she can't have a child anyway, if it turns out to be that, and then neither does she have a relationship with God anymore, you know? That's going to be sad if that happens. Real story. Um, I shared a similar message as this a couple of years ago in another church. And in the congregation was a young man who desperately wanted to get into medicine. He had a fantastic UMAT score. He had an excellent ATAR in the high 99 point something or other. No worries at all. 
accept that, they would not let him in because they said that there were some issues in his interview. And when he thought back to the interview, he had mentioned during the course of it, when they asked him, why do you want to be a doctor? He told them that he was a Christian. And he noticed the tenor, the atmosphere of the interview changed slightly when he said that. And looking back on it, he believed at this point when I was chatting with him that it was that that was preventing him from getting into medicine. Now, you can understand why somebody would start getting angry at God with that. Hey, I've honoured you, Lord. I've done what it is you call me to do, and you're not giving me the thing that I want. Source of living water. And when he heard this message, he really realised that he needed to lay that down before God. Because actually, when you think about it, when we, the, the Bible promises that if we commit our way to him and acknowledge him in all our ways, then he will direct our paths. If we've acknowledged him in all our ways and our path goes that way rather than that way, isn't it that this is the path we should be walking on? And if for him that didn't involve medicine, it didn't involve medicine. And God didn't want him in that particular career. And actually coming to that place of letting it go and trusting God's love and care for him um, was what he needed to do. And he came to that place. His mum texted me the next day and said he's actually really come to this place of peace about this. And lo and behold, two days later, he received a letter from Adelaide University and that a place had opened up and he was invited in. And he's now studying medicine at Adelaide University and has a passionate relationship with God. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, that if you give up your source of living water, God will provide it, because actually, if that's why you're giving it up, it's still your source of living water, so <laughs> just be a little careful. I think, though, that for this particular guy, God couldn't let him into medicine until he'd given it up, because if he had got it in that state of anger, actually, he would have gained the whole world but lost his soul in the process. And that would have been sad. And the powerfuler thing for him, if that's a word, is that he actually really got his relationship with God right again. And then the blessing that came became a thankfulness to God for that blessing, not a, yeah, well, about time this happened. A bit of honest sharing. For me, the thing that can become my source of living water definitely is work, if I'm not careful. The sense of respect that I get from a, um, students achieving certain results. Um, I've got to be really honest, at the end of the year when the results come out, I kind of want my subjects to have got the best of the results and then others to be good but not quite as good. <laughs> no, no, don't laugh. It's really... It's abhorrent. You know, like when I start thinking through what that actually means, I, it actually it disturbs me. And yeah, we can laugh, but actually it's that third test I said. Do you need somebody else to be not quite as good at something? And yeah. And that's the indication to me that actually work can become my source of living water, as in the thing that I use to give me worth and value and refresh me and make me feel like I'm something. But if I do that, if I put my confidence in that, I can be in big trouble, and I'll talk about why that will be the case in a minute. And it can be work then that distracts me from the things that are really important in my life if I'm not careful. Now, here's the rub. Shakespeare quote, by the way, just saying. <laughs> Hamlet. That's the play, not the author. Um, here's the rub. Work is not a wrong thing. In fact, the Bible has a lot to say about how important work is. So this whole living water thing gets pretty tricky. We get it that if bad things are the source of our living water, you know, partying into a drunken stupor every Saturday night, yep, we get it, that's wrong, repent. Uh, buying new Mercedes after new Mercedes after new Mercedes, yep, probably get it, again, we'll repent of that. You know, gambling all of the family inheritance on uh, trying to win millions of dollars so we're incredibly rich. Yeah, yeah, we get that. That's bad. But what about when good things become our source of living water? So let's have a little think about how we might test to see whether a good thing has possibly become a source of living water. Paul gives us, I think, a little test that we can apply. 
in Galatians when he gives us a list, the fruit of the Spirit, which he describes to be, as you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is my work producing those qualities in me? Is my sport, I'm just saying this for other people, so because I don't play a team sport, I, I cycle and I go skiing, but maybe that's a source of living water in my life, actually, skiing. Um, is my sport producing faithfulness and a sense of teamwork and self-control? Is my desire for a family about something which I have peace, etc., etc.? Is, is this thing producing those qualities in me? Or, Paul also gives us another list, unfortunately a lot longer than the fruit of the Spirit list, that goes like this. That there are fruits of the sinful nature, and they are obvious, Paul says. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discords, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. So apply these two lists to the thing that's in your life. Does my work cause me to be jealous of others who succeed? Uh, Then a good thing is becoming bad because it's producing a fruit in me that's of the flesh, not of the spirit. Does it lead me, my work, lead me to act out of selfish ambition rather than goodness and gentleness? Is my desperation for my sports team to win making me lack self-control on the field, that would be this list. Obviously, those things like witchcraft and orgies and things, we'd probably recognize those as, mm, mustn't get into the orgies, but you know, some of these other things are a little subtler, aren't they? Things like envy, factions, dissension. So, is my obsession or my need to be on Facebook all the time, actually creating discord with others in my house. That's the list. The discord is coming from the work of the flesh. So that thing which could be good, I'm not saying Facebook's bad, it does keep people connected, just in sort of fake relationships, Um, does keep people connected. But if it's causing discord and factions and envy, that's not, it's, it's a gone bad etc or is a romantic relationship causing sexual immorality and a lack of self-control that's the list that's the sign that it's something in your life that is actually becoming a source of living water even though it may well be good work sport social connections sex they're all good things in their right context but not if they're producing those sorts of qualities in us Our last thought for today, here's the ultimate problem with those things becoming an alternative source of living water and it comes back to that key verse, skip that one, that I mentioned at the beginning. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Pick two little phrases out of there. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you my yoke take my yoke upon you Hmm. does that mean there are other yokes and my yoke is easy and my burden is light here's the kicker everything has its yoke and its burden everything all the things that we make the source of our living water have a yoke and a burden what do I mean by that This is a yoke. It joins oxen together so that they can pull plows, etc. They work together. So when Jesus says, take my yoke, what he means is, you need to yoke yourself together and you work together. How good is it that Jesus has done the work for us, for our salvation? This is why it's easy to be yoked with Jesus because he's doing most of the pulling. In fact, honestly, he's doing all of the pulling. But when you yoke yourself to something else, that other thing, you are probably doing most of the work and you're doing most of the pulling. And that's the problem. You see, if I yoke myself to work as my source of living water, then the burden is that I have to keep performing. 
I have to be in a situation where my students keep achieving the same results if I want that same kind of effect at the end of it. And then what happens if one day I lose my job for some reason and I've put so much stock in that because it's my source of living water, I can tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to start wondering about my self-worth. I'm going to get angry at God probably because that's been my source, not him, etc., Keep thinking about it. If someone's yoked to social connection through Facebook and social media, what's the burden? The burden is feeling inadequate. The feeling of missing out, of watching other people's lives who are, that are so good, because they're all polished up and look like they're fantastic. Even like changing your baby's nappy becomes a major earth-shaking event that has to be photographed on Facebook, yeah? When you change a nappy, it's like... Bleh. The cake that they bake for their loved one, which is like living the dream, you know, marriage. You think, my cake didn't work out, and sometimes, seriously, I'm not really living the dream. It's like, we're fire. Or, you know, it's, so the burden is FOMO. You know, the fear of missing out and the sense of inadequacy. Yoke yourself to social media, and you carry a burden with you. If you're yoked to appearance, then you need to keep your body constantly looking good. You've got to keep the exercise up and you somehow you've got to conquer the effects of time. And then what happens when you age? Do you feel less worthwhile? Do you start to doubt yourself? You know, you go back to that source of living water that I said for everybody there's probably a temptation. You can work out what the yoke's going to be with it. You'll work out what burden it is that you must carry. And the thing is that eventually that thing will die on you and you'll be dragging a corpse along with you when you're yoked to it. And it won't be providing your living water for you. And if in the meantime what you've done is you've rejected God as a consequence of that, you're on your own pulling this dead thing as a weight through life. That's the problem with having an alternative source of living water. Good things can become bad when they become that source of living water. We become a slave to those things. Now, for this woman at the well, that thing was marriage. It was men moving from relationship to relationship. Can you understand now why Jesus, when she says, show me this source of living water, give it to me, that's what he must go to because he has to show her what she's actually made, her source of living water, in order for her to make the change. And oh my goodness, this sounds like really condemning. We're going to go around and negative about Facebook, negative about sex, negative about you know, romance, negative about work. No, 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 no. Those things are all good in their place. It's just that we don't want to make them our source of living water. And actually, this is an incredibly freeing thought when you consider it. Because if that's true, if we end up bound to something that we're dragging along like a dead corpse through our life, how much more freeing is it to get Get those things into right perspective. It is. It's so incredibly freeing because we're all going to be a slave to something. Why would we not want to make ourselves a slave to the one who's actually going to really be providing living water in our lives? So utterly freeing. And we need to apply the promises of the word of God to our situations as well. What I mean by that is this. I'm valuable because God loves me. I'm worthwhile because God made me. I have purpose because he said he has good works prepared beforehand for me to do and to walk in. So I don't need work to give me my value. I have to keep coming back to those verses. I have to keep myself thankful for the work that I have but acknowledge the source of that and I need to keep my perspective on the word of God that says my truly good works are in him. You are beautiful because God is forming an amazing character in you. He says that. And that even though the outward man is perishing, the inward is being renewed day by day. So you don't need your source of living water to be your physical appearance. Get the word of God in there and change your perspective on it. You're never alone because God is always with you. Lo, I'm with you always until the end of the age. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So we don't need social media to be our obsessive source of living water because we have an intimate relationship with God. That's the most powerful of all relationships. So we don't need to feel like we're missing out. We're not missing out. We're missing out if we get the source of living water wrong. But we're not missing out if we've got him right in our lives. 
You don't need a boyfriend or girlfriend to be acceptable, so therefore stay in a relationship that isn't good for you because God knows you intimately. He knows the very number of hairs on your head. So you don't need that relationship for that. You need him for that. You don't need lots of money. Why do we want lots of money? You know, we're rich because we have a God who promises us that if we seek him first, all these other things will be added unto us. Isn't that rich? So we don't need lots of money. You don't need to get into medicine because it's God who's prepared those good works beforehand, whatever career that is in, etc., etc., etc. And we need to know the word of God and how it applies to the thing that could be our source of living water. Keep thankful. Keep focused on the word. Keep prayerful. I think as Christians we need to keep checking to see that we haven't allowed things to slip into a wrong focus. How freeing it is to think this way. That woman was suddenly filled with excitement. She rushed back to tell all those Samaritans about this man she'd discovered who knew about her life and because of her they asked him to stay there for a number of days and many people came to know Christ as a result of that. I'm pretty sure something transformed in her life that day and she realized where the true source of living water was. So the question for us is this. Are we drawing water from the wrong well? Are we taking our purpose and identity and self-esteem from the wrong source? We need to cast that off. And instead, we need to come to him. Come to him. Not to those other things. They don't offer anything. Come to him, all you who are weary and burdened. Why are we wearied and burdened? Because we're carrying, we're yoked to that thing that isn't actually providing anything for us and we're doing all the work to drag it along with us. And he will give you rest. Take his yoke on you, not the yoke of those other things. And then learn from him. He's gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls. You will. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you make us able to have relationship with you, that you've made the way clear for us to have relationship with you. Lord, we want to be a people who have our source of living water right. We want to be people who check ourselves against your word, check ourselves prayerfully, check ourselves by being thankful for the things that we have, but by making sure that we're focused on the giver of those gifts, not the gifts themselves. Help us, Lord, not to get our priorities so skewed that we're seeking self-worth and esteem and value from other things and even getting angry with you when you're not providing those things, when you said, whoever, thir- whoever drinks from this well will thirst again. Help us to be people who drink from the well that is living so that we will never thirst again and, Lord, that our relationship with you would be central, powerful, passionate and a source of all the sustenance we need. Because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.